that you're the you're the one that found the uh, victim down there. Is that the right? police? Well, let's see here. Here's a kid who finds a body in the field and doesn't call the police. We don't think that story they makes sense. The physical they had to be in the call. You know, it's just one of those things that really doesn't happen in Fort Collins. For the Coloradoan, I'm Erin Udell, and this is People vs. Masters, Making a Murder in Fort Collins. In the first episode of this podcast, I really wanted to focus on the murder of Peggy Hetrick, who she was and what she was like. In this second episode, though, I'd like to introduce you to another central figure. His name is Tim Masters, and back in February of 1987, he was a 15-year-old sophomore at Fort Collins High School. At the time, he was 5'10", 115 pounds, a real skinny kid, living with his dad near the corner of Boardwalk and Landings Drives in Fort Collins. You know, Tim Masters um, had the unfortunate circumstance of living at a corner uh, in, a, in a trailer with his father, and there was a field behind the trailer that people used to dump stuff in. That's Steve Lato, an attorney and author based in Michigan. What does he have to do with this, you might ask? Uh, Not anything in 1987. He actually didn't meet Tim until decades later. He helped him write the 2012 book, Drawn to Injustice, Tim's account of what happened. I'd also like to mention that I did reach out to Tim Masters and get in touch with him. He was really nice about it, but he declined to speak for the podcast. He said it's time to move on with his life. Anyway, back to Steve. Here he is describing the morning of February 11th, 1987. So one morning, Tim got up to walk to school. He's walking through the field. They saw something in the field, and just this was like right around sunrise, that looked unusual to him. He walked over and looked, and it looked like a human body, but he wasn't quite sure. And this is just a, you know, a teenage kid. So he went to school, and he didn't think much of it. And then an a, a hour or two later, a guy riding a bicycle past the field saw what at that point in broad daylight looked to him kind of like a human body. But even the guy who called it in said, I think it might be a mannequin, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So when the police were investigating this body that they found in the field, um, they went over and knocked on the trailer door, and, and Mr. Masters said, well, my son walks to the field every morning, and, he, and, and, and I think I saw him walking out in that direction. You should talk to him. Remember Detective Linda Wheeler Holloway? She was the one assigned to process Peggy's apartment. Well, she also helped canvas the area that morning, and she's the one who actually connected Tim to Peggy. She knocked on the master's trailer door to find Tim's dad, Clyde, a Navy man who was raising Tim as a single father after his wife died when Tim was 11. Tim also had an older sister, Serena, but she had joined the Army, and she, she had been gone by then. It was just the guys. Anyway, Linda's asking Clyde questions, and he tells her, yeah, I saw Tim walking to the bus, but then he kind of dropped out of view. Uh, he'd walked over to where Peggy's body was, but you couldn't, you couldn't see the body from the master's trailer. So Clyde tells Linda, yeah, he diverted a little and then got back to his normal route and headed to his bus stop. In describing the field that morning, Tim said he first thought Peggy's body was just another pile of trash someone had dumped in the field. As he got closer, though, he noticed a reddish-brown streak in the grass and, and some small furrows that ran in line with that streak. In the early morning light, he described it as brown spray paint. As he walked over to get closer, he saw what he described as a mannequin, pale and shaped like a woman, maybe a Rosessi Ann doll, you know, those dolls that they taught CPR on at school. That's what he thought at the time, that it was a CPR doll stolen from one of the schools and placed in the field by some kids as a prank. 
Tim wrote in the book that he'd been teased in school. After his mom died, like I said, it was just him and his dad. And his dad wasn't Ward Cleaver. He was a strict disciplinarian, not used to parenting a teenager on his own. He didn't let Tim have friends over after his wife died, and he didn't let Tim go out and spend the night at friends' houses either. Tim's social circle from elementary school and middle school kind of evaporated, and he ended up going to a high school that not a lot of his old friends went to. So he wasn't a popular kid by any means. When he saw the body, he thought that could be it, that it was just some kids putting a CPR doll in the field to scare him. Were they watching to see if he was freaked out, he wrote. After he got on the bus, he said he couldn't stop thinking about it. What if it wasn't a mannequin, he thought. Tim, in a documentary produced a few years ago, went into this little further. Remember his dad, this strict Navy man, this Vietnam vet? Tim said that he was raised by his father to not really show emotion. Don't cause trouble. Keep it inside. So when he got on the bus, he didn't try to talk to his driver. When he got to the school, he didn't try to talk to a teacher. So he's in school that day, and an officer goes to Tim's high school and pulls him out of typing class. In Tim's book, he describes it as a pretty casual conversation. It was a plainclothes officer, and he asked, Do you know why I'm here? To which Tim replied, Yeah, I think I saw a body. The officer and Tim talk at his school for about an hour before he is driven to the Fort Collins Police Department to fill out a witness statement. There, he writes out what he told the officer and draws a map of the field. The next day, Tim's in class, and a friend of his, Wayne, asked him if he'd heard about the murder. It was front-page news in Fort Collins at that time. Heard about it, Tim wrote. I told him I was the first person to see the body. Wayne asked him if he reported it to the police, and Tim lies and said yes. He explains that he was embarrassed he hadn't realized it was a body, and his dad was even upset with him for not calling the police. They talked about it a little further, and Tim ended up drawing up a map with landmarks of the area. He also drew a picture of someone being dragged, like how he assumed Peggy had been. Tim was a bit of an artist. He had thousands of pages, notebooks upon notebooks, filled with classwork and doodles at his house. That same day at school, Tim is called to the front office. There, another police officer was waiting for him and took him and his father, Clyde, to the police station. There, they read him his Miranda rights and sat him in an interview room. He and his father signed consent forms for police to search their trailer in Tim's room. The officer asked if police could talk to Tim alone, and his dad obliges. And that's when the interrogation begins. Here's Steve again. One of the things that people don't understand, and I'm an attorney, and I'm here to tell you, if you're ever being questioned by the police, stop them and say, well, I'm an attorney. And you might say, well, why? You've got nothing to hide. Because they will torture you if you don't. And so Tim Masters is a teenage kid, and him and his father go to the police station, and, and the cops say, can we talk to Tim alone? And the father, who's a law and order guy, says, uh, sure, I guess so. He's got nothing to hide. So the dad goes off, and, and, the, and Tim goes into an interrogation room where a detective comes in and starts accusing him of stuff, calling him a liar, yelling at him. And then when, when the detective gets tired, he tags out, and a brand-new, fresh detective comes in and takes right over, screaming, yelling, and they do everything. Bad cop, good cop, they do everything. And the whole point is that they can get innocent people to confess to things they didn't do by wearing them down and beating on them emotionally and mentally. And to Tim's credit, he never once wavered. And I've actually seen videotapes of people who are innocent who said, you know something, if it'll make you stop, I'll sign anything you put in front of me. Tim stuck to his guns and kept saying, I didn't do anything. I told you the truth. I saw her body in the field, but I wasn't sure if it was real, and I kept walking. Here's some clips from that interrogation, which lasted hours. In his book, Tim describes it, and it seems pretty exhausting. He was interviewed by more than one person, and each seemed to take different tactics. 
We're not stupid. We didn't bring you in this room because we're taking a wild guess out of the dark. Do you seriously think we'd waste our time doing that? Would we bring you in here without some kind of proof? What's this? Who's dying there? I don't know. Well, you drew it. I drew a lot of pictures. Okay, like well, you can remember that drawing. What is it? You have a lot of uh, pictures of, of killing women, don't you? Pictures you've drawn? I do. Don't Not you? just women. Huh? Not just women. Not just women, but you do have pictures of women being killed, don't you? Yeah, I guess I do so. If I was sitting in that chair and you were sitting here, what would you be thinking? If you you asked me a question, oh, yeah, I, it looks against me. But is it right or wrong? It's wrong. Why? Because I didn't kill her. In those clips, you hear about drawings, and in some additional clips I didn't include, officers talk about knives. You might remember my mention of Tim being an artist, a doodler in class. I'll get further into that a little later, but first I wanted to introduce you to Ray Martinez. Run me through again uh, what your day was like February 11th, 1987, um, when they found the body, when a, a cyclist found the body of uh, Peggy Hetrick and, and called it into police. I just remember the call coming in. I was working the Special Investigations Unit, which is in essence our drug unit. You might recognize Ray's voice. He was the person interrogating Tim in those first two clips. Martinez started at the Fort Collins Police Department in 1974 and retired in 1996. Since then, he served as Fort Collins mayor and on city council. Most recently, he was elected to represent District 2 on the council in last year's April election. Uh, the, the plan was, and, and this is very typical in police interrogation, someone has to be the bad guy, and then the good guys come in and try to really go in for you know, the confession, but if you can get the confession by being hard on them, that has worked as well. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's trying to do, if one doesn't work, let's try the other. Mm -hmm. So I, I went in there with a very strong mind, strong-headed that, you know, you've done this. I even showed him a picture and, and, uh, and told him that he, he scared me by what happened. And, and it just, like, he was not showing any emotion. He was not um, showing any physiological signs that were indicative of deception. I mean, that's what you look for. Ray went on to describe Tim as an introvert, and he said that even then he had doubts. Well, when I came out of that interview, I, well, when I went in, I, I looked down and I thought, this guy can carry that heavy of a body. I mean, you know, and, and uh, tongue-in-cheek, I'd say he'd have trouble carrying his school books. I mean, he just was a very thin, somewhat seemed to me frail kid. Mm -hmm. And I, I couldn't visualize that. And so that I was just thrown off guard by that. But needless to say, after the interview and I came out, I told him, I said, are you sure you have the right person? I was in doubt. You told who? Told the other interviewers. Okay. Which probably been Sherry and, and them. I mean, it's be easy to deny that now or say I don't remember, but that was the first thing that came out of my mouth. I, I was really in doubt. From what I've read, researched, and been told by sources, Tim became the prime suspect in this murder investigation pretty early on. First of all, he lived close. The field where Peggy was found was practically in his backyard. Secondly, it seems police were pretty suspicious about him not reporting what he saw that morning. And then, of course, there were the drawings and the knives. Here's Steve again. 
When they went into Tim's room, they found uh, two things that they thought were suspicious. They found some knives, and Tim, being a teenage boy and, and living in Colorado, he owned a couple knives. Um, and they also found uh, collections of, of notebooks of, of drawings and stories. And Tim loved war stories, and he loved, like, uh, Friday the 13th-type movies. And Tim's actually a pretty talented artist. He can draw. And so he was constantly, he's one of these guys who sat in class and doodled. I mean, okay, so so he was doodling and, and drawing things, and he'd draw things like dinosaurs, or he drew, like, you know, Freddy Krueger. And a couple of the drawings, he, he had, you know, like people being shot with guns or being, you know, hit with bows and arrows. And mm -hmm. if you went through the thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of stuff that he drew, you could find one or two where somebody got stabbed or somebody got shot. And they and they eventually brought that out and said, look, this is what this kid thinks about. He's a murderer. And you know mm -hmm. something? <laughs> Number one, they were they were cherry picking because he also drew pictures of dinosaurs and he wasn't a paleontologist. So the idea that you can cherry pick out of thousands of drawings and find one or two that make him look guilty, uh, yeah. But the knives, for instance, that they found, they tested them all. None of them were connected to the crime. I don't think any of them even had blood on them. I mean, they were just he collected knives and and and. You know, a lot of people do. I just want to pop in and say that there were actually half a dozen survival knives on Tim's dresser when police searched his room. And Steve is right. None of them were ever tied to Peggy's murder. Another knife was found, too. Almost six months after Peggy was murdered, a neighborhood kid was playing in a ditch near Landings Drive, and he found a survival knife. He played with it a little, stuck it in some mud, wiped it off, and took it home to show his dad, who immediately called the police. The tip of the knife was missing, and almost 10 years later, Peggy's body was exhumed to x-ray it for any signs of that knife piece. You see, the stab wound to Peggy was intense. It punctured her lung and went into her body with such force that it broke one of her ribs. But when they exhumed her body and x-rayed it, there were no signs of that piece. And so that, too, was never tied to Peggy's death. And it was never connected to Tim, either. In fact, there was no physical evidence that ever pointed to him. It seems like it was more based off of his character, this creepy kid who loved to draw weird things. Maria Liu is an attorney in Greeley, and she doesn't really come into this equation until the next episode, but I did want to include some of what she said in this one. She described Tim as this kind of scrawny kid who wasn't really popular in school. He lived in a trailer with his dad. Um, in a photo, he has shaggy hair. He seems to be a little quiet, withdrawn, you know. And around that time period, too, in 1987, I don't know if you remember the West Memphis Three, those were those kids in Memphis that um, they ended up being wrongfully convicted as well and were released mm. several years later. Just sort of the same, you know, one of the guys was really into heavy metal and was really into um, wearing black. And, mm -hmm. you know, they said this is all that, that the murder in that case was, you know, like a satanic cult worshiping. Mm -hmm. you know, this is the kind of stuff that was kind of floating around in the U.S., you know, that there's these like devil-worshipping kids or juveniles that are getting involved in these, you know, very complex crime scenes. To clarify, what Lou is talking about, the West Memphis Three case, actually happened in the early 1990s. But there was what was referred to as this kind of satanic panic of the 1980s, which was largely blamed on demonic messages and images being glorified in metal music. So all in all, these drawings, these narratives and stories Tim wrote about war and death and killing, they don't paint him as this all-American teen they don't necessarily make him a murderer either. So with nothing more to go on as far as Tim's concerned, the case seems to kind of go cold soon after Peggy's murder. 
There were some theories that if Tim did have something to do with it, the date of Peggy's murder could be tied to the anniversary of Tim's mom's death. But those dates don't actually match up. They're a few days off. Either way, police took a chance and set up surveillance in February of 1988. They planted fake information in a newspaper article in the Colorado and on the one-year anniversary of Peggy's death, saying that they're zeroing in on a suspect, and they made sure a copy of the paper had been delivered to the master's door. Officers staked out Peggy's grave to see if anyone had visited it and parked outside of Tim's house to track his movements. One of the things, if you, if you read the investigation and what happened prior to Tim's trial, some of it would be funny if it wasn't involved in a murder case. And so they talked to some psychiatrist or some profile or somebody who said, you know, if this kid did it and we can make him, quote, unquote, snap, maybe he'll go out and like lay on her grave on the anniversary of her death. Or maybe – and it's like, wait a second. You're trying to get a guy that you think is a murderer to, quote, unquote, snap? I mean, that doesn't mm-hmm. seem like that's the kind of thing you do, you know? And, I, you know, one of the police officers I did speak to before I – you know, before the book was completed – was one of the guys who was doing the surveillance, and he's sitting in a trailer across the street from Tim's place watching him, and nothing unusual is happening. It actually occurred to him, we're just wasting our time here. This is stupid. But, you know, they went through the motions, but nothing happened. And it was just kind of unusual when they had evidence. They had footprints. They had things they could have been tracking down, but instead it's like, no, let's watch this kid and see if he snaps. So, with the surveillance of Tim's trailer and Peggy's grave turning up nothing, life just kind of went on. I mean, high school wasn't pleasant for Tim before he became a murder suspect, so it was no picnic after. But he got older, and he got closer to his longtime dream of following in his dad's footsteps, joining the Navy. When he was 17, he took the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery Test, the ASVAB, to determine if he had any potential for a military career. He did well and got calls from recruiters from the Army and Marine Corps, but he held out for his dream, the Navy. After they called, he went through the motions of enlistment, paperwork, a physical, and eye exam. He was told he'd be trained as an aviation structural mechanic and was set to ship out to boot camp on June 9th, one week after his high school graduation. The day before he was supposed to leave, though, he got a call from the recruiter. He was told to come down to the guy's office, where he found out that the recruiter had been informed that Tim was a suspect in a murder investigation. He had to discharge him from the Navy. Super upset, Tim ended up going home and telling his dad, who ended up hiring an attorney. And long story short, Tim got a call later from that same recruiter asking him if he would still be willing to join up. There was, as it turned out, no rule that you had to be disqualified from military service if you were the suspect in a crime. So Tim picked up where he left off. He shipped out to boot camp, was stationed on the USS Constellation in San Diego, and he left Fort Collins in the rearview mirror. One of the reasons I think he joined the Navy was he wanted to get away from Colorado. And, 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 you know, you can join the Army and you get to go a certain distance. If you want to get to the other side of the world, you join the Navy. And, and Tim did get to see, you know, great swaths of the world while in the Navy. And, and you know, so he's in Philadelphia and his commanding officer contacts him one day and says, hey, there's two police officers from Fort Collins who want to talk to you about a murder investigation. And all of a sudden it comes crashing back to him. Linda Wheeler Holloway had been made lead investigator on the case in 1991. And after rereading reports, sending items to a crime lab to check in on advances in DNA testing, and re-interviewing people spoken to in the case, she came across something. A classmate of Tim's named Wayne, who I previously mentioned, told Wheeler Holloway that Tim knew a detail in the case police didn't think he could have known. He'd mentioned that Tim told him one of Peggy's breasts had been, like, cut off or something. But her jacket had covered up that fact, and it wouldn't have been known by someone just walking by. Thinking that piece of information was only known by police and the killer, 
Wheeler Holloway and Lieutenant James Broderick traveled to Philadelphia in 1992 with an arrest warrant for Tim Masters. After a grueling 11-hour interview spaced out over two days, Tim explained how he'd known this, though. After the murder, rumors had swirled around Fort Collins High, and with the need for more manpower, investigators had used the help of some local explorer scouts to help sweep the field after Peggy's murder. It was a group of high school kids interested in law enforcement careers, and one of these explorer scouts was a girl in master's art class. One day following the murder, she had apparently openly talked about the line search she'd participated in. She shared a detail, albeit a wrong one, that Peggy's nipple had been bitten off. It had actually been cut off with a sharp instrument like a scalpel or a razor blade. Anyway, Tim explains that that was where he'd heard that piece of information, and Wheeler Holloway looked into it, realizing his explanation checked out. Arrest warrant in hand, Wheeler Holloway and Broderick go back to Fort Collins, without masters. Wheeler Holloway, who dedicated weeks to reopening the cold case, boxed it back up, and in 1995, she left Fort Collins police for a job with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. When she did, her colleague, Lieutenant Broderick, asked if she'd be okay with him opening it back up when she was gone. She said yes. It's important to note that I did reach out to Lieutenant Broderick. I left him a phone message and also mailed him a letter telling him about the project, asking if he'd be willing to comment. I haven't heard anything back. I also reached out to Fort Collins Police Services, but with Peggy's murder still an open investigation, now in the hands of the Attorney General's office, and restrictions on what and what can't be discussed, the Assistant Chief of Police said that they'd have to pass. After the 1992 interview in Philadelphia, Masters spent five more years in the Navy. He'd always wanted to make it a career like his dad did, but civilian life seemed a little bit more appealing. Less rules, more money, more freedom. So he got out of the Navy in June of 1997 and accepted a job at Learjet as a mechanic in Wichita, Kansas. While Masters was moving and starting a new job in his civilian life, back in his hometown, police still hadn't forgotten about him. A couple of things had happened in between his interview in Philadelphia and his getting out of the Navy in 1997. First, in 1995, Fort Collins Police Services Detective Bureau is restructured, giving investigators more time to work on unsolved homicide cases. Also, something else happens in 1995. What's, what's strange about this case is that while the ex-boyfriend had an alibi, so did Tim. Tim had right. an alibi witness, and the alibi witness was his dad. And his mm -hmm. dad said Tim was home last night. Tim couldn't have done this. And mm -hmm. Tim's father passed away. And almost immediately after the father passes away, they reopen the case and they arrest Tim. And I honestly think that they did that because they said, wait a second, Tim Masters uh, has no alibi anymore. Let's, well, now we can prosecute him. And if mm -hmm. they prosecuted him before, his dad would have gotten on the stand and said, well, he was home that night. He couldn't have done it. And then a jury right. would have been faced with, do we believe the father or not? If they believe the father, Tim walks free. Now, that's obviously just Steve's opinion. But what we do know for sure is that in 1997, investigators in Fort Collins start building a case against Masters based on information they've learned about sexual homicide. And they start consulting with a forensic psychologist out of California, Dr. Reed Malloy, who pours over Tim's old drawings and stories. Using this information, in August 1998, Broderick writes an arrest affidavit that gets him an arrest warrant for Tim Masters. You know, here's the thing. T to get Tim arrested, they had to have an arrest warrant. And the arrest warrant's got to present probable cause that a crime was committed and that Tim was the one who committed it. And the problem is they had such little evidence to create an arrest warrant. And so Broderick prepared an arrest warrant, which he finally did get a judge to sign off on, which, in which he said, here's the evidence we have against Tim. And the bulk of it was things like, you know, he didn't report the body, but he saw it. 
Um, he has drawings of people being stabbed. Um, you know, and, and, and the, the arrest warrant is actually rather lengthy. Um, I've seen arrest warrants that are much, much shorter than the one that was used to arrest him. And the amount of stuff that he put in, and you're going, is this really, like, is this the basis to get him arrested for murder? Around 9 a.m. on August 19, 1998, Tim, who had come back to California briefly after taking a break from Learjet, hears a knock on his door. In his book, Tim writes that he's greeted by a police officer at the door who says he's under arrest but won't tell him for what. Then another officer, Lieutenant James Broderick, appears. Tim Masters, he said, you're under arrest for the murder of Peggy Hetrick. So what exactly did get Tim arrested? What was this new evidence? And who was Dr. Reed Malloy? Next time on People vs. Masters, Making a Murderer in Fort Collins. There's actually very, very little evidence, even being generous to the police, very little evidence that suggest Tim was the right person. But they did manage to get him arrested and, and like, get a trial, and the bulk of the trial was Dr. Reed Malloy saying Tim's the kind of guy who would do this, therefore he's guilty. Uh, I was absolutely convinced that Tim Masters was the perpetrator of this crime. Yeah, one of the prosecutors argued in closing argument, you know, who else in the world could have done this? I mean, that opened the door to every alternate suspect. When you look at, a, at someone who gets killed, you always look at their closest known acquaintances. But there were a number of people close to Peggy who all told the police some variation of the same story that she knew this guy or even had dated this guy. They all described her as being afraid of him or being uncomfortable. So what were some what were some of these pieces of evidence that were not originally turned over? Well, certainly uh, the investigation of uh, the good doctor who lived across from the crime scene. Someone could have written a book just about the creepy Dr. Hammond. Lo and behold, in the actual police report, it said, look into Hetrick. <laughs>